The text of Scripture for this Lord's Day is the same one we looked at last Sunday. It's the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20. Hear the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keeping praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Given what Paul develops in this text, we're not surprised that he asks for people to pray that he says it fearlessly. Let us pray. Living God, how grateful we are for your word that helps us understand reality as nothing else can. I pray that you would give us keen minds and open hearts and that you would teach us now how to live in this reality as never before, for we pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. When I was a young pastor, a man I looked to as a kind of mentor was Richard Halverson, who after serving many years, a congregation in the Washington DC area, was appointed the chaplain of the United States Senate. One of the responsibilities of the chaplain is to lead in daily devotions and to lead in a prayer for each formal meeting of the Senate. In one of his devotions, Richard Halverson made this observation. No adequate understanding of history can be had without taking into account that behind and around and through history, a personal, diabolical, satanic, spiritual force is bent on destroying all good and its author, Jesus Christ on the floor of the U.S. Senate. He went on to say, in fact, none of us will understand ourselves and our troubles until we recognize that evil is more than the mere absence of good, that evil is dynamic and personal, working to possess our minds and hearts and to coerce us 
to reject God's love and rule. Our struggle, says the Apostle Paul, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, therefore, Paul continues, take up and put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, before we seek to understand what Paul means by all this language, let me make a number of qualifying statements. First qualification, the powers of darkness are not our only enemy. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Daryl. <laughs> The Bible tells us that we also battle sin, the flesh, and the world. Sin, we all know about, but probably do not take the facts seriously enough. The flesh, we also know about. The flesh is the human self turned in on itself, the human self centered in and empowered by the self. One of the favorite songs of the self is, I did it my way. The world. We also know about that. Not world as in God's good creation, but world as human society organizing itself without God. World is where we live every day. World is not interested in God and God's purposes. Indeed, world rejects God and God's goodwill for creation and civilization. So we also struggle with these enemies. The devil and his principalities and powers mess with sin, flesh, and the world, fanning the flames of sin, fueling the desires of the flesh, and giving energy to the world's quest to go it without God. Second qualification, we humans are responsible for our own choices and actions. These powers Paul speaks about may exert tremendous pressure on us, but we are still responsible for our own attitudes and behaviors. Third qualification, the struggle is not between equals. Say that again. The struggle is not between eagles. We are not the devil's equal and the devil is not God's equal. The great reformer Martin Luther used to sing, on earth is not his equal, meaning we are no match for the evil one and his henchmen. But the devil is not God's equal. He and his henchmen are no match for God, thank God. <laughs> evil is not equal and opposite to good. The evil one is not equal and opposite to Jesus Christ. Thus, fourth qualification, the outcome of the struggle, of the battle, is not up for grabs. The fact is, the outcome has already been settled. Jesus Christ wins because he already has through his cross an empty tomb. And so missionary Amy Carmichael used to say, we work from the victory, not toward the victory. We work from the victory, not toward the victory. In this battle with these invisible opponents, we work from the victory, not toward it. And that sets the whole tone and posture of our struggle. We know the final outcome. Earlier in Ephesians, 
Paul declares, God has raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. This is why then Paul simply calls us to stand, or, or better yet, he calls us to simply stand. He uses the verb four times. Verse 11, that you may be able to stand firm. Verse 13, that you may be able to resist. Resist is a form of the verb stand. Verse 13, having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore. And, and here's the implication of this. Since Jesus Christ has already won, since he is already Lord of all, hold the ground he has already won. Not march on and take the ground, but stand firm on the ground Jesus Christ as Savior and Redeemer has already taken. Now, how? That's the question, isn't it? How? How do we stand? How do we resist in the evil day, as Paul puts it? Be strong in the Lord. Verse 11, be strong in the Lord. Take careful note, we are not exhorted to be strong. Come on, disciples, just be strong. Paul is not challenging us to pull up our bootstraps and get into the fight. He exhorts us to be strong in the Lord, and that's a big difference. Even if this enemy is defeated, we in our own are no match for him and his powers. And we are strong when in our weakness, we throw ourselves on the strength of the Lord. New Testament scholar William Lane writes, it is tactical suicide to underestimate the strength of the enemy. And I would add, it is tactical suicide to overestimate our ability to stand on our own. Be strong in the Lord. Now, how do we do that? Take up and put on the full armor of God. Verse 11, take up and put on the full armor of God. As we noted last Sunday, our Lord not only gives us his strength for the struggle, he gives us the right armor to wear in the struggle. And because we wrestle with spiritual powers, we need to wear spiritual armor. Take up and put on the full armor of God. <laughs> Buckle the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Strap on the gospel of peace. Take up the shield of faith. Put on this helmet of salvation. Take up the sword of the Spirit and pray at all times in the Spirit. Again, our struggle is not against flesh and blood only, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And to what is Paul referring when he speaks this way about the struggle? We've already met this language earlier in the letter to the Ephesians. He uses it in the first prayer that he prays in chapter 1, verse 21. I've already referred to it. He prays that we might know the power that God exercised when he raised Christ from the dead 
And when he then seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority. And he uses this language when speaking of one of the roles of the church in the world, chapter 3, verse 10, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So, again, what, what does Paul mean by this language? The church has grappled with this for centuries. And before I say what I think Paul is saying, let me recommend two resources for those of you who want to go deeper. The first is by our good friend John Thompson, who is the lead pastor of the Sanctus Church in the greater Toronto area. He has written a powerful book simply entitled Deliverance. It should be out soon in hard copy, but it is already available on Kindle. And the other is in uh, the form of a presentation of a dialogue from four different views which people in our time hold. It's edited by New Testament scholars James Beely and Paul Eddy, and it's entitled Understanding Spiritual Warfare, Four Views. The authors present the views of people, some of you, some of them, some of you have heard of, Walter Wink, Gregory Boyd, David Paulison, Rebecca Greenwood, Peter Wagner, Cindy Jacobs. And then the authors have these various people interact with one another. And it's an engaging model of how the church can deal with different understandings of things. It's a model of active listening and speaking the truth of love, in love. So well done. Such a helpful resource. Rulers, powers, spiritual forces of, of darkness and wickedness, prince of the power of the air, the evil one. To what is Paul referring? Now, some would like to argue that Paul is thinking of invisible, but basically human powers and forces. They'd like to say that what Paul has in mind is human structures, bigger than any individual or the combination of individuals that seemingly run the world. Realities like tradition, the state, the party, the movement, the military-industrial complex, big tech, even religion, all of which can take on a life of their own all of which can become very oppressive, and all of which, if not careful, can begin to work against God's purposes, as we know, and it can feel very overwhelming. We know how corporations and governments can develop an ethos, a spirit, which takes on a life that is bigger than the sum of its parts, which can then influence individuals' actions and convictions, even causing people to believe things they would not otherwise believe if they were not part of the group, causing people to act in ways they would never act unless they were part of the group. Microsoft takes on a life of its own. Apple takes on a life of its own, which continues even after the founder retires. Facebook takes on a life of its own, which even its human creators can no longer control. City Hall 
takes on a life of its own. Being liberal, being conservative, being NDP, being green takes on a life of its own. Churches can take on a life of their own, so much so that even changing pastoral leadership makes no real difference. Now, I understand that perspective, but Paul seems to be referring to something more, to something other, to structures other than what humans devise to spirit other than the human spirit or a combination of human spirit. In verse 11 of Ephesians 6, Paul refers to a personal being he calls the devil and then to the schemes of the devil. And then in verse 16, to the evil one and then to the flaming missiles of the evil one. Paul seems to be referring to non-material, non-human, supra-human powers. Powers that can interact with material and human. Powers that influence the human ethos and spirit, but which are other than the human and humanly generated. Powers that operate on earth, but are not earthly. I'll repeat that line again. Powers that operate on earth, but are not earthly. Hence that term Paul uses, in the heavenly places. The powers Paul has in mind operate from the heavenly places. Now, I suggest we have not grasped the gospel Paul preaches in his letter to the Ephesians until we pay attention to and take seriously that phrase, in the heavenly places. We meet the phrase throughout the letter. Chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 20, Christ is seated in the heavenly places. Chapter 2, verse 6, God has made us alive with Christ. God has raised us up with Christ, and God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Boy, that's a critical text for understanding the Christian life. God has made us alive in Christ. God has raised us up in Christ. God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Not will make us alive, not will raise us up, not will seat us with Christ, but has already, already alive, already raised up, already seated in the heavenly places. Chapter 3, verse 10, to which I referred earlier. The manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Heavenly places is another dimension of reality very close at hand, intersecting the dimensions we can see and hear and touch and measure and quantify. It is where Christ is. It is where we somehow now are with him. And it is where the opponents of Christ are active. Now, I want to go back and talk about what we talked about when we began this series in Ephesians, worldview. Most of us modern people, especially we who are still under the spell of the so-called enlightenment, which is a spent force, live out our lives with a fundamentally two-dimensional view of reality. Most of us in the city can reduce all of life to two dimensions or try to reduce life to two dimensions, the human self 
and the physical environment. And everything that happens in our life can, supposedly, be traced to and explained by these two dimensions. It's a powerful reading of reality to which even we who believe there is something more easily succumb. But the biblical world is so much, vision is so much bigger. The biblical worldview is at least four-dimensional. The human self, who is more glorious than the two-dimensional view ever realizes. The physical environment, which is also more glorious than the two-dimension ever realizes. And the living God, who is more glorious than any of us yet to realize and the heavenly places where the non-material superhuman powers and forces exist influencing the material and human more than we realize they are created mark that whatever these superhuman powers are they're created by god for god's purposes some obey some do not but they're created not eternal and as i said earlier therefore not god's equal Boy, I want to emphasize that. Although some rebel and assert their power against God and God's purposes, they are not God's equal. They're powerful. They're dark and they're wicked, as Paul tells us in the letter, but they are not God's equal. Now, we find this reading of reality all over the Bible. We read in a number of places of God meeting with the so-called heavenly assembly. Sometimes God meets with those whom God, who are called gods. Sometimes these powers are called sons of God. Sometimes host of heaven or heavenly hosts. So, example, in the opening line of the book of Job. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan, the accuser, also came among them. We meet this understanding of reality most clearly in Psalm 82. The writer of the psalm is a man named Asaph, and he, he speaks of God, quote, taking his stand in the congregation of God, close quote. He tells of God then judging in the midst of the rulers, in the midst of the gods, you mean there are other gods alongside the living God? No, no. Asaph is referring to angelic spiritual forces and powers gathering around Yahweh, the only true living God. Then Asaph records God speaking to these powers and forces. Listen, Psalm 82, verse 2. God is speaking to these powers, and God says, How long will you judge unjustly? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. That is the role God created the powers to exercise. Make justice happen. It's the same role he's given to human governments. Make justice happen. Then Asaph laments the fact that the rulers, the angelic rulers, have not done their assigned job. Justice is not being done in the world. And as a result, says Asaph, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. When the heavenly hosts do not do justice in the world, the foundations of the earth are shaken. Need I illustrate? Texts like Psalm 82 
reveal what we would never be able to deduce on our own. God has created angelic, spiritual rulers and powers to play a part in, in his running of the universe. Some cooperate, some do not. Some do not accept their assigned places in the universe. They rebel. They seek to subvert God's purpose. They do not like God. That's putting it mildly. They hate God. They hate Jesus Christ. I can't contemplate how, how anyone could ever hate Jesus Christ. It's so sad. The principalities and powers hate Jesus because they know that he came to overcome them, which he did at the cross and through the empty tomb. And therefore, the powers hate him. They will not surrender to the very truth they know. The powers know that Jesus is Lord. They will not surrender to the gospel, which they know. So, they do everything they can to blind human beings to the truth about Jesus, to hinder the progress of the gospel in the world, and to lead those who follow Jesus back into slavery to sin. They do everything they can to divide Jesus' followers, to destroy Jesus' church, and to ruin what Jesus redeems. So, back to this question. What does Paul want us to know about the nature of this struggle? Can we say more about these principalities and powers? This is where I wish we could have a Q&A time and I can know what you're thinking. The person who's helped me the most is Walter Wink. Although I do not agree with everything he uh, develops, I have found very useful a little equation that he works with. The equation is P equals O plus I. P equals O plus I. P equals O plus I, he writes. Remember this simple formula, and you can avoid the confusion of the centuries about the principalities and powers. The powers P are not just spiritual spooks running around loose, leaping on people unaware. But the powers P are not just human institutions generating their own ethos and spirit. Rather, the powers P consist of an outer manifestation, O, and an inner spirituality, I. This means, writes, writes Wink, that the church cannot be content with just addressing the material aspects of unjust institutions. The church must speak to the inner spirituality of the institution as well. When we lose touch with the biblical vision of reality, the church is left tinkering with the outer and ignoring the inner. Real redemptive change only comes by addressing the inner. Which is why nations, for example, can go through revolutions and not really change. Dictators can be toppled. Long-standing bureaucratic systems can be rearranged, but nothing really changes because the inner spirituality remains intact, unchallenged. The inner spirituality which gave rise to the dictatorship and the oppressive bureaucracy has not changed. P equals O plus I. And there's no real change in the P without change in the I. Am I making sense? And that is why Paul calls us to wear the specific pieces of the armor he calls us to wear. Spiritual armor for standing against and overcoming spiritual forces. Defensive pieces, as we looked at last Sunday. Truth, righteousness, peace, 
salvation, faith, and offensive pieces. Only two. Two offensive pieces. The sword of the Spirit and praying at all times of the Spirit. Since the struggle is not against flesh and blood, flesh and blood armor does not work. Placards and bullhorns, rocks and fists, handguns and assault rifles have no lasting effect against the ultimate enemy. What brings lasting change is the sword of the Spirit and praying at all times in the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, not a sword of any human making, not a sword of any metal, heavy or otherwise. A spiritual sword fashioned by God the Spirit and imbued with the life and power of God the Spirit. And, and what is this sword? The Word of God, says Paul. The Word that the living God speaks, the Word that the Holy Spirit speaks, the Word that God made flesh, the Word made flesh speaks, the Word that Jesus of Nazareth speaks. In the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we discover that the whole book is bracketed by a picture of this sword. In chapter 1, Jesus is standing in the middle of his churches, and John says, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Then in chapter 19, Jesus comes on a horse, and John says, his mouth had a sharp two-edged sword. The overarching theme of the last book of the Bible is that Jesus wins, and he wins by speaking. That is because his word not only informs, it performs. His word makes things happen. Our words makes things happen. Our words can heal and they can hurt. Our words can tear down and they can build up. How much more the word of the one who made all things and holds all things together. Let there be light, he said, and there was. Let there be animals and there were. Get up and walk, and a lame man does. Come out of him, and the demons flee. Hush, be still, and the raging wind and waves die, die down. Lazarus, come out, and a dead man walks out of the tomb. And when we speak God's word, God's word makes things happen. In particular, Jesus again unleashes more of his victory over evil. As we noted last Sunday, it is what Jesus did in those 40 days in the wilderness, in his face-to-face -face confrontation with the evil one. It is written, three times the tempter tries to bring Jesus down, three times Jesus responds. It is written, round one, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Jesus answers, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Boy, does that need to be emphasized in our time. We're not going to make it without the word. Round two, the tempter tries to use the, the sword against Jesus. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down off the cliff, for it is written. He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. But the tempter took that word out of context, and out of context, it is not the word of God. So Jesus responds, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Round three, the tempter shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and says to Jesus, I'll give all this to you if you simply bow down and worship me. Jesus responds, be gone, Satan, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, since the struggle is ultimately against spiritual forces and powers, we have to use spiritual weapons. Speak 
the word of God. And something always happens to the spiritual powers. To the powers? Something happens to the powers? Boy, I hang on to that story Luke tells in the 10th chapter of his gospel. Jesus sends out 70 of his first disciples on a short-term mission project. He tells them that they are simply to announce the gospel, to announce Jesus' gospel. The kingdom of God has come near, and they obey. In the towns and villages, they speak the word. The kingdom of God has come near. And then they returned to Jesus with all kinds of news about the kingdom things that began to happen. People were healed. People were reconciled. People were freed from all kinds of bondage. Then Jesus tells them what he saw happening while they were speaking the word. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What? <laughs> The disciples had been speaking to visible humans, and these visible humans were responding, but they unknowingly were also speaking to the invisible powers, and the invisible powers were also responding. They were falling at the gospel of Jesus. So Paul says in the middle of his letter to the Ephesians 3.10, through the church, the wisdom of God, the goodness of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Whenever believers announce the good news to other humans, Jesus is Lord, the kingdom of God has come near. We're also announcing the news to the rulers and the powers. And the I in the P equals O plus I is being dressed, and things began happening. I was watching Satan fall like lightning. I used to say to people, even if no one shows up in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning, I'm still going to preach because I'm preaching not only to those who show up that I can see, I'm preaching to these powers in the city, and they will obey the word of Jesus. Sword of the Spirit, and praying at all times in the Spirit. Just as something always happens when we speak the Word, so something always happens when we pray in the Spirit. Maybe not immediately, and maybe not in visible ways, but something always happens when we pray in the Spirit. Again, my mind goes to the last book of the Bible, to the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 8, John watches as the Lamb of God breaks the seals on the scroll of history. When Jesus breaks the seventh seal, there is silence in heaven for about 30 minutes. And John sees this incense rising to God. And he's told that this incense is a picture of the prayers of all the saints rising to the throne. What is going on? This, and it is profound. John is discovering that one of the ways God moves history forward is through the prayers of his people. Boy, I regularly am moved by the observation made by the New Testament scholar, George Beasley Murray. Listen, if you've been drifting off over the last few minutes, come back and listen to this. Listen. No one was aware, sorry, no one was more aware than John of the limitations of what individual men and women can do to change the course of history and to bring in the kingdom of heaven particularly in the face of cosmic forces ranged against them and the transcendent nature of the kingdom itself. But 
We can pray to him who has almighty power. And it would seem that God has willed that the prayers of his people should be part of the process by which the kingdom comes. Then he writes, the interaction between the sovereignty of God and the prayers of the saints is part of the mystery of our existence, and faith is called to take both seriously. Do you want to see our city healed? Do you want to see our nation healed? Take up the sword of the Spirit and pray at all times in the Spirit, and the I in the P equals O plus I begins to change. It won't change any other way. Now, I simply have to take a few more minutes, forgive me, and quote Walter Wink again. He reminds us that the disciples of Jesus in the first century had no access to political power or process. But, says Wink, this seems to have done little to prevent the church from impacting the Roman Empire with devastating force. Why? Listen, listen, listen. When the Roman magistrates ordered the Christians to worship the imperial spirit, saying, Caesar is Lord, they refused, kneeling instead and offering prayers on the emperor's behalf. This seemingly innocuous act was far more exasperating than outright rebellion would have been. It was. Why? Listen, listen. Rebellion simply acknowledges the absolute and ultimate nature of the emperor's power and attempts to seize it. Prayer denies the ultimacy altogether by acknowledging a higher power. Do you hear that? Prayer denies the ultimacy of those powers altogether by acknowledging a higher power. Rebellion focuses on the physical institution and its current incumbents and attempts to displace them by an act of superior force. Prayer, on the other hand, challenges the very spirituality of the empire itself and calls the emperor's angel, as it were, before the judgment of God. Our struggle is not just against flesh and blood. It's not just against human beings and human institutions and human movements. Our struggle is against superhuman forces and powers in the heavenly places. And that's why Paul's exhortation in his letter is stand. Firm. How? Take up and put on the armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, and that helmet of salvation. And take up the offensive pieces, powerfully offensive, the sword of the Spirit, speaking the word of God and praying in the Spirit, interceding for the world before the throne of King Jesus. And so I conclude these two sermons on spiritual warfare the only way I know how. By praying that great hymn the church has sung for hundreds of years, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by the reformer Martin Luther. I'll do it as a rap. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not as equal. 
Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Doth ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and his gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen.